my parents used to live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so I would, from time to time, visit them or spend the summer uh, in their house there. And sometimes when, we were, when I was there, we would drive up the side of Mount Sandia. Sandia, Spanish for watermelon, is named that because when the sunset hits it, the whole mountain range turns this pink watermelon color. And sometimes we would drive up the side of Mount Sandia, long, windy, narrow, treacherous roads, very close to a cliff that you could fall off at any moment. Sometimes you'd pass cars coming down, and that created very interesting situations on a road that was clearly not big enough for two cars. But you would go through this sort of harrowing, anxiety-inducing drive up the side of the mountain. But when you finally reached the top, the view was simply staggering. The view made it worth it. The beauty of the horizon, the entire city of Albuquerque laid out uh, at the foot of Mount Sandia, and it was stunning. And so it made the hard climb up the side of the mountain worth it, just to take in the beauty and the glory of that scene. Our passage today is a little bit like that. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. Lord willing, we'll get all the way through verse 29. And verses 15 to 22, the first half or so of this passage, are a little technical. It, It takes a little bit of mental work to grasp what's going on, to follow Paul's argument, to understand what he's laying out right so these verses are the sort of rugged terrain of the mountain pathway with crags and cliffs to navigate and the like but verses 23 to 29 when you get there the mountain peak where you look out over the horizon and see these bold vistas of staggering majesty and beauty make the trip up the mountain worth it So bear with me through the first half or so of these verses so that you can rejoice with me over the second part. Because if you don't take the journey, then the mountain peak view is not quite as great. If you tune out now and then tune back in later, you'll miss some of the glory and the beauty of what God has for us in this passage. So here's the basic structure of the passage. I'm not going to give you all the points, but here's the basic structure. There's two foundational truths about the law and its relationship to our salvation, followed by four life-altering implications. Two foundational truths about the law, the law of God, the law of Moses specifically, followed by four life-altering implications. Like Because these two foundational things are true, here are glorious gospel realities in which we get to live. So, follow with me. Uh, Just for context, Paul's argument in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 5, he declared that faith is the basis of our justification, that is, our right standing before God, and faith is the fuel for our sanctification, that is, our growth in godliness, our living of the Christian life. And both of those things were by virtue of him supplying the Spirit of God to us when we have faith in him, and we trust in Christ, he gives us his spirit by which we are declared right with God and by which we are empowered for Christian living. In verses 6 through 9, he gave the example of Abraham, 
which illustrates that we are counted righteous by faith, not by works of the law. Abraham is sort of the poster child, the analogy that he uses <clears throat> to demonstrate that truth. And then in verses 10 through 14, Paul told us that the curse of the law shows the futility of law-based righteousness. In other words, if we're going to try to gain our right standing with God, sorry, <clears throat> if there's a bottle of water in the room, that would be really helpful. Um, if we're trying to gain our right standing with God by keeping his law, we're under a curse because when we fail in one part, we are guilty of breaking the whole thing. And so if that is our approach to gaining a standing with God, we are doomed to failure and condemnation. Instead, he says, faith receives the blessing of Abraham, that has become recipients of those promises to Abraham, by recognizing that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking it upon himself. That's what's gone on in chapter 3 so far. And so now we come to verse 15. Thank you. And I'll invite you to simply uh, follow along with me with your eyes as I read aloud verses 15 through 22. We're just going to read the first chunk of this for now, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Two foundational truths concerning the law that we find in these verses. Here's the first one. The law did not replace the promise to Abraham. The law did not replace the promise to Abraham. Verses 15 through 18, roughly, tell us this. In verse 15, he says, to give a human example, all right, speaking of the, the blessing of Abraham that comes by faith, he says, to give a human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it after it has been ratified. The word here that's rendered covenant uh, deals with a legal contract, specifically a will, like a last will and testament. And in that day and time, once a will was in effect, that is, it was ratified by its author, it was unchangeable. Situations could change, relationships could change, but that contract was inviolable. It could not be broken, it could not be added to, it could not be changed. And that's just with a human contract, in their own context and culture. You understand this is how a contract works. 
And so Paul here argues from the lesser to the greater. If even a human contract is unbreakable, how much more durable and trustworthy is a covenant made by God himself? So, a human contract is not breakable, and so all the more a contract, a covenant that's ratified by God must be untouchable, inviolable, unbreakable. So we're referring again to the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise that he would bless him and make his name great and make him a great nation, and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, right? That's the Abrahamic covenant. Tracy read that to us a few minutes ago from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And now he's saying that is settled, that is sure, that can't be changed. No one adds to that. Then he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he goes into this kind of grammatical uh, diatribe about what's meant by offspring. And it's not more than one offspring, it's one offspring. You see, the word offspring, the, the word that's translated offspring, can, it can also be seed. And just like our English word seed, it can be singular or it can be plural, right? So we can say uh, that uh, we can speak of a sunflower seed, for example, and we mean one little seed that will grow into a sunflower. Or we can say that the farmer went into a field and sowed seed, by which we mean he, he sowed many seeds, right? Not just we didn't go out into the field and put one seed on the ground. He sowed a lot of them. And seed, while it's in a singular form, can refer to either one or to many. And the Greek word here for offspring is the same way. And so Paul says, guided no doubt by the Holy Spirit, who's inspired him to write these words, Paul says, uh, he interprets the singular form of seed here as referring not to many seeds, but to one seed. So when he says the promise was made to Abraham and his seed, or his offspring, he says he means one offspring, not to many offspring. Namely, he says, Christ. He made the promise to Abraham and to his one offspring, namely Christ, Jesus Christ. So, remember that singular plural thing about offspring, because it's going to come into play again down in verse 29 at the very end of this passage with a bit of a twist. But for now, here's Paul's point. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. When God promised to give Abraham and his offspring land, descendants, blessing the chief recipient of that promised blessing is christ himself the offspring of abraham so christ is the fulfillment of god's promise to abraham then he goes on to say in verse 17 this is what i mean i like it when biblical writers say that if you're not sure here it is here's the point the law which came 430 years afterward Referring, of course, to the law of Moses. This would have been after the people of Israel have been led out of Egypt. They've come to the foot of Mount Sinai. God has led Moses, their leader, up to the peak of the mountain and delivered his law to them. That's 430 years after his covenant with Abraham. So he says the law that came 430 years afterward does not annul, that is to make obsolete, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make it void. So just a reminder for the context of where we are in the book, the Galatian false teachers are elevating an ethnic 
national identity, that is Jewishness, to a status of superiority and priority over non-Jewish identities, thus their insistence that Gentile Christians should follow the Mosaic law. You need to be more Jewish. And that only makes sense if the law they are imposing upon Gentile Christians is superior to God's covenant with Abraham, or if it somehow made it obsolete. So it only makes sense to say that all Christians should become Jewish and follow the law of Moses if the law of Moses sets aside the covenant with Abraham. That's the only way that makes sense. But, as we've already seen, since the Abrahamic covenant is inviolable, unbreakable, it was ratified by God himself, then it is a deadly error to suggest that non-Jewish Christians must follow Jewish law in order to be justified before God. So saying you've got to follow and adopt the Mosaic law is like rejecting the Abrahamic covenant. Paul is saying that is not how this works. The law did not come to replace the covenant. The law did not come to make obsolete the promise that God made to Abraham. It serves a different purpose. Frank Thielman says, teachers in Galatia cannot subordinate God's multinational, worldwide covenant with Abraham to the ethnically and nationally specific covenant God made with Israel in the Mosaic Law. The Abrahamic covenant came first, and no later covenant can invalidate it. All right? So the covenant with Abraham still stands even while and after God gives the law to Israel through Moses and makes a covenant with them through him. In verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes by promise. And that's what we've been saying all along. If salvation is by our keeping of the law, then it has nothing to do with what God promised and whether or not we believe that promise. It has to do with our performance. If uh, the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. If the promise to Abraham was to be fulfilled in a global, multinational ingathering of Abraham's offspring in Christ, then it would be impossible for the nationally bound Mosaic law to have been the fulfillment of that covenant. So what Paul is saying here is the Mosaic law is not a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It does not set it aside. It does not replace it. It does not change it. If salvation came through keeping the Mosaic law, then it would no longer come by promise. That is, God's covenant with Abraham would have to be declared null and void, and the inheritance provided on a different basis than faith, namely law-keeping, law-observance. But that's not the case. For, he says, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So always remember, Abraham's covenant came by a promise, So the law that comes later through Moses does not change the promise, does not revoke the promise, does not add to the promise. We have to remember the promise is distinct from the law. Which leads us to a transition to another point because the natural question that arises is, well, then what is the law for? If the law of Moses doesn't replace the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't add to it, it doesn't make some new way, then what's the purpose of it? If the blessing of Abraham comes to his descendants through promise, that is, through faith in the one who made the promise, and not through the keeping of Mosaic law, then why did God give the law at all? 
what is the purpose of the law? Since it's not for the bringing of life, the securing of inheritance, etc., it must have a different purpose. And that's what he says in verse 19. It begins with this question, why then the law? Here's point number two about the law. The law is not about salvation, but about sin. The law is not about salvation, but about sin. God's covenant with Abraham is all about salvation. It's about blessing he's going to bestow apart from your righteousness, right? Blessing and honor that he's going to give, increase and descendants and land and glory. These are things that God will simply bestow and he promises to do so. That's about your salvation. The Mosaic law is not about salvation at all. It's about sin. And he gives us two reasons. Why then the law? And they're kind of repeated in verses 19 and verse 22. The first reason that he gives, the first purpose, if you will, of the law, is that it defines sin for us and proves that we're sinners. That's what the law of God is intended to do. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. And then if you look down in verse 22, the, uh, the first half of verse 22 says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The scripture, the word of God, which I think is just the synonym here for the law, the word of God, the law of God, it imprisoned everything under sin. In other words, the law serves the purpose of making clear that we can't keep it. The whole reason the law comes to the people of God is so that they will be aware of their sin. That they will be aware, man, we fall really short of God's standard of holiness and righteousness and goodness. We can't keep up with this, right? To say that the law, the scripture, imprisoned everything under sin is to say it made the boundary lines clear. And we began to learn, I am trapped in this. I don't have any way to get away from this. Ben Franklin in his autobiography famously tried to master all of the virtues with this big spreadsheet. I'm going to focus on one virtue a week until I have that mastered, and then I'm going to add the next virtue down, and by the end of this 13-week program, I will be perfectly virtuous. But then he found very quickly he couldn't do it because once he thought he had one down and started focusing on the next one, the one that he previously mastered started to give him trouble again. Oh, man, I can't keep up with this. That's Ben Franklin and his... Uh, interesting spreadsheet mind kind of a way finding out I'm imprisoned under the law of God I'm trapped I can't live outside of the boundaries of this moral law so the law functions sort of like that big red button with the all cap sign that says do not press what are you gonna do you're gonna press the button of course you're gonna press it I didn't care about the red button until I read the words, don't press. And then I was like, ooh, I wonder what might happen if I press the red button, right? The law is like the parent's exhortation to his son. Don't hit your brother. What's the brother going to do? He's going to hit his brother, isn't he? Wasn't even thinking about hitting my brother until you said don't hit your brother. Now I'm like, mm, that sounds kind of good. Think I'm going to hit my brother and see what happens, right? This is what the law does. It sets the boundaries it makes the the guideline the standard clear and then it points out to us man i can't do it i cannot keep the law paul says in romans 7 verse 13 that the law came quote in order that sin might be shown to be sin 
and become sinful beyond measure. So our awareness of sin is clarified by God's giving of the law and our internal sense that we can't keep it begins to grow the more we bump up against it and the more we violate it. God says, you shall not lie. Man, how many times have I lied? Right? God says, you shall not covet. Man, how many times have I watched a neighbor drive by with a great truck and I'm like, oh, Lord, let it be mine. Right? So we can't keep these laws. And that's the whole point of it. God gives the people the law to imprison everything under sin. That is to make sure that it's clear, you know that you're a lawbreaker and that you can't redeem yourself. You can't rescue yourself from it. That's the first purpose of the law. It defines sin for us and proves that we are sinners. The second purpose that he gives us in these verses is that the law prepared the way for rescue in Christ. It prepared the way for rescue. Looking at verse 19, the first thing he said was it was added, the law was added because of transgression. The second clause of that sentence is until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That offspring, he's already told us, is Christ. Jesus is the promised offspring, the one who would receive all the blessings of Abraham. And so the law was in place until the coming of the promised one, the coming of Christ into the world. And so the longer we live under this law, the more aware we become of our inability to do anything about it, the more prepared we are by God's grace, to recognize a lifeboat when it comes. God had us live imprisoned under the law so that we would recognize when Jesus comes and fulfills it for us and takes its penalty for us and defeats death on our behalf and becomes the curse for us, that's what I need. I'm going with him. That's the purpose of the law. It prepares the way for our rescue in Christ. And then down in verse 22, he says, I think about the same thing. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the whole purpose of the law is to make us aware that we're sinners, to prove that we can't keep the law, and to have our eyes fixed on the rescue that God would deliver. And in Christ, he has provided that rescue. An old Isaac Watts hymn says, How sad our state by nature is. Our sin, how deep it stains. For Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. But there is a voice of sovereign grace sounds from the sacred word. O oh, ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. This is the purpose of the law. It points us away from ourselves and our ability to make ourselves righteous before God and fixes our eyes upon his rescue in Christ. Friend, if you sense your conscience condemning you, if you are aware that you are a lawbreaker, a rebel against God and his righteous ways, that is a mercy of God upon your soul. Run to him. Trust in him. Confess your sin to him and call upon Jesus Christ to rescue you from your wretched condition. This is what he does. He saves sinners. Not when they get their act together, 
but when they draw near to him in simple faith and cast themselves upon his mercy. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Christ came to do. That's how he is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. So, two foundational truths about the law. The law did not replace the promise to Abraham, and the law is not about salvation, but about sin, and about preparing the way for us to receive his rescue. Now he transitions, verses 23 and 24 are a a transition to the mountain peak. All right, we're not at the mountain peak just yet, but he's going to set the stage for the mountain peak. So look with me at verses 23 and 24. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So he's kind of summarizing. He's summarizing the points he's just made about what the law does and our relationship to it. And then he's pointing us forward to the mountain vistas of glory that he's provided for us in Christ. We get this glorious before and after. So verses 23 and 24 are the before. This is what it was like before. Before faith came, that is, before Jesus Christ came and along with him this new invitation to come to him by simple faith and receive all the promises that God gave to Abraham. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so then he calls the law our guardian. So we were under a guardian until Christ came. In Greco-Roman culture, wealthy families often hired a slave to care for their children. So they'd be out doing whatever they're doing, working their jobs, and they had a slave in the house who was taking care of their kids, perhaps teaching them, perhaps tutoring them uh, how to grow up. And the guardian played a temporary role in the life of a Roman citizen as he grew up. He was often perceived as harsh and temperamental. And the guardian's role came to an end when the child came of age. And in the same way, the law, he says, prepared... This is, excuse me, to quote Frank Thielman again. The law prepared the way for the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham through the gospel of justification by faith. So the law functions as a guardian. That is, it's sort of keeping us under its tutelage, in its boundaries, until the time that Christ comes and fulfills the covenant and offers us this new and better way. There's going to be more about that guardian thing in our passage next week, so bookmark it, remember it, we'll come back to it. Now we get to the mountain peaks of gospel glory, all right? Four life-altering implications that we find in verses 26 to 29. Follow along with me. Verse 26, he said, I'm starting verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That time is gone. We're in something new. Four, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We're going to try to go through this kind of quick. Four life-altering implications. Number one, we are united to Christ. 
We are united to Christ. We saw this a little bit in a previous week in this book. But I want you to see several times he uses this little phrase. In verse 26, he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons. Down in verse 28, he says, You are all one in Christ Jesus. So when you see in Christ, in Christ Jesus, he's speaking of the way that we are identified with him, united with him in his life, in his journey, in his resources. So by faith, we are connected to Christ, united to Christ in such a way that all that's his is ours. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there's that phrase again, into Christ, have put on Christ. Like clothing. You've become clothed in Christ. You're so close to him, so connected to him, that it's as though he is the clothing that you wear. He is what God the Father sees when he looks upon you, the clothing of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are united to him. Now, in this verse about baptism... He's probably speaking metaphorically when he says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He probably means to use this as an analogy, a metaphor, for being immersed in Christ, cleansed in Christ, made fully his. But that is, in fact, what actual water baptism represents. Water baptism is a depiction of the believer's union with Christ. That's why we go under water, like a burial. And then we come back up out of the water, like a resurrection. Because we are in Christ in such a way that his death and burial is ours. And that his resurrection to new life is our resurrection to new life. Baptism is this dramatic portrayal of Christ's death and resurrection that displays the inward reality of salvation in the life of a sinner who's repented and trusted in Jesus. Namely, he is fully immersed into Christ, and Christ's life is now lived out in that new Christian's life. Remember Galatians 2, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are united to Jesus Christ by faith. The glorious blessings of union with Christ can scarcely be overstated or studied too deeply. I would strongly commend you to seek out resources on the doctrine of union with Christ. Read it. Soak in it. Be blessed by it. We're united to Christ. Number two, we are sons of God. Verse 26 again. In Christ Jesus, again, because of our union with him, by virtue of our union with him by faith, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, earlier Paul established that those who believe in Christ's gospel are sons of Abraham. Right? We talked about how we're descendants of Abraham because we have faith in God's promises like Abraham had. And so he said we're sons of Abraham. We're in his faith family. We're recipients of his promised inheritance. Now he goes even further and reveals an even more amazing reality. You're not just sons of Abraham. You are sons of God. That's crazy. You, rebellious 
sinner walking your own road, rejecting God and his ways, by sheer grace and mercy, he has made you his son. He has called you into his family. He's adopted you as his own. You are all sons of God. And notice the word all. You are all sons of God. Going back to the controversy here between Jew and Gentile and whether Gentiles should become more Jewish, he says, nah, -uh. you are all Jew and Gentile alike, God's sons. Everyone who believes in Christ, Jew or Gentile, is a full-fledged, card-carrying member of God's family without respect to your keeping of the Mosaic law. That's not how you get into God's family. That's not how he takes you in as his son, by your obedience to his law. No, it's by becoming a recipient of the blessings of Abraham that flow through Christ. Little teaser here. He says we're all sons. Not that we're sons and daughters. More on that next week. You'll have to come back to find out what that's about. It's good news, trust me. Number three, we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he is not erasing all of these distinctions in every sense. He is not saying that now we become this one kind of amalgamation of a generic, everybody's the same kind of homogeneous humanity. That's not what he's pointing to. He's not saying now that you're in Christ, there are no human distinctions that make you unique. What he's saying is those distinctions are no longer a barrier between you and all of the benefits and blessings of union with Christ. Every one of the blessings of salvation flow to you fully and freely through faith because you are united to Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, or if you're a slave or you're free, or if you're a man or you're a woman. Those distinctions do not hinder your full and complete access to God and your complete inheritance through Christ. Since everyone who believes the gospel is thus united to Christ, that is immersed in him, clothed with him, then they have become a new people. One united people. Despite the existence of differences and distinctions among them. Gentile Christians must not be made to become Jewish in order to be accepted by God. Because both Jew and Gentile are equally acceptable to God without respect to the law, solely on the basis of their union with Christ through faith. That's what verse 28 means. In terms of a person's right standing before God, and full acceptance into his family as a son, and complete receiving of the inheritance that he's promised to Abraham, no ethnic, racial, or national identity, no social status, no gender distinction matters at all. They are utterly irrelevant as it pertains to our standing with God. These are all standard human distinctions between different kinds of people that often create social divisions and even inequalities i'm sure you've noticed the experience of a jew in that day might be very different from the experience of a gentile perhaps an experience of a jew throughout the ages you could say it was different than the experience of a gentile 
the experience of a free person would be very different from the experience of someone who's enslaved. The experience of a woman would be very different than the experience of a man. These are distinctions that matter in some ways. They have meaningful implications for life and how we relate to one another. But those experiences, those human distinctions, those social divisions play absolutely no part in determining a person's standing with God. And therefore, they should play no part in their standing with us. We have no right to make distinctions. You can only come this far. Only people like this gather here. We have no right. If we are living in that way, we are denying the gospel of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we hope to be a church that displays the glory of God in the gospel, we must become a people who live as one, who function as one. We must move intentionally through the various social, cultural, relational, even historical barriers that keep us isolated from one another or fragmented into our comfortable little compartments of relationships. Perhaps to let the weight of this verse and the glory of this concept sit appropriately with us, we should add some categories of distinction to the ones that Paul has named that have all equally been obliterated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he says in Christ there's no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. Let's add a few. In Christ there's no married or single. There's no parent or childless. There's no rich or poor. No homeowners or renters. No public schoolers or homeschoolers. No black or white or Latino. No cool or uncool. No young or old. No fit or out of shape. No Republican or Democrat. These distinctions mean nothing in terms of how somebody relates to God through Christ. And therefore, it should mean nothing in terms of how we relate to one another across all of those barriers and boundaries. If it means anything to us, it should actually propel us in the direction of those differences. Let's lean into those things. Let's find the unity that Christ died to purchase for his church. That unity is too precious to resurrect boundaries that he died to destroy. The unity that the gospel creates among Christ's people does not have room for distance or divisions along these or any other lines of human distinction or uniqueness. We all belong to one another without exception. The gospel calls us to persistently fight our own flesh as we seek to know and be known among God's people, to disciple and be discipled, to prefer one another in love. Now, friends, if this were easy, the Bible wouldn't have to urge us in Ephesians 4 to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is not a word of condemnation. These are hard things. These are realities that we live with. But the gospel is bigger. The gospel is more beautiful and more precious and more powerful than all of the things that divide us. Let's work at this, family. It's worth fighting for. Fourth and final implication of these truths about the law are that we are heirs of God. I'm not going to say very much about this because our verses next week will really dig into this some more. If you are Christ's, verse 29, then you are Abraham's offspring. So now, remember what we said earlier about the singular and plural version of that word? The singular form of offspring here is taken in its plural sense, right? 
Christ is the one offspring of Abraham. And all those who are in Christ are the plural, the, the many offspring of Abraham. So since God's covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then those who are in Christ, that is, who are united to him by faith, are also recipients of the covenant's promised blessings. So who is it that are offspring of Abraham? Everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, the original recipient and complete fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. These are glorious truths. These are things that are realities for us, purchased by Christ, actual, concrete realities. In Christ, we are united to him. We are sons of God. We are one with each other in Christ, and we are heirs of God, recipients of all of his promised blessings and grace in this life and in the one to come. What a glorious gospel well, it's the treacherous terrain of the mountain pathway that makes the view at the summit so stunning. And it's the weighty burden of the law and what it reveals to us about the depth of our brokenness and the severity of our need that puts the free grace of God in Christ into stark relief for us. I'll close with a quote from John Stott. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Friends, let's look to Christ, whose gospel love and grace shine most brightly against the backdrop of our inability to save ourselves, and let's rest on him completely. Let's pray.